On the way up here tonight, my kids were mentioning to me that it just didn't quite feel like Christmas. And I said, that's because you forgot. Remember, we moved here from Southern California. This actually feels like Christmas out there. (laughs) But for them, over the last 11 years, it's usually a lot colder than this. And there might be some snow on the ground. So Christmas isn't quite complete, as it were, if there's not a little more frost in the air. I wonder what it is for you. What's essential for Christmas to be complete? And what I mean by that is... What is there about Christmas that if it were missing, if it didn't happen, Christmas would just not feel complete. It wouldn't feel like Christmas, whatever that is for you. What is that? Well, it might be food. I think of Christmas, there are certain foods we have at our house all the time. And we just have it at Christmas. And we're going to have a lot of it when I get home in just a minute. So this will be a brief message, I think. (laughs) Don't clap. (laughs) Might be food. Might be the lights. I mean, this is the only time of the year people spend hundreds of dollars to put up lights in the house. And you spend hours and hours waiting in line to see some lights on some pieces of wire in a park at night. Hours we wait for that hours, but we do it at Christmas. There might be certain traditions that you have and your family does them every single year. And it's just what, it's a part of Christmas. It just wouldn't feel right if you didn't go through those motions, if you didn't have those things, if you didn't do those traditions, there might be certain feelings that you have around Christmas that if you just didn't have that feeling, it wouldn't feel that it wouldn't be Christmas. Maybe it's family coming in. And I can tell just from the crowd tonight, there's a lot of family here visiting other family members. Maybe it's fantasies, you know, like the reindeer with a red nose and Santa and all that comes along with that. I mean, this is the only time of year we really do that kind of thing. Maybe people try to throw that in at Easter also with a Easter bunny. But this is unique. Candles, music, We've been singing the Christmas songs. I mean, there's some of you who violated Thanksgiving. You started listening to that music, you know, back in around Halloween, which is really something you need to repent of. (laughs) Decorations. Would it feel complete if you weren't giving gifts? I mean, would it feel like Christmas if we weren't giving gifts to each other? Just think through that. All of the different things that are so unique around Christmas that if we didn't do them, would it actually feel like Christmas? Then I I want you to think about that. The reality is if any and all of these things and all of these particulars are missing and it doesn't feel like Christmas, then it's very likely that Christmas has very little to do with Christ. Have you thought about that? None of those things are wrong. They all make the, the season wonderful and enjoyable. We don't need to be a downer on any of those things. We can participate in them and enjoy them immensely. I hope we do. But if those things are missing and it doesn't feel like Christmas, then how much is Christ really what's driving what makes Christmas complete? What is essential for Christmas? I think we need to think about that. 
And I want us to meditate on it just for a moment because I think what you just heard read for you is what is essential for Christmas. Just these two verses in a little book that you probably don't read very often, especially at the Christmas time. It's not one of the gospel accounts of the birth. It's tucked away in one of these little books that's often called the pastoral letters as if it's written to a pastor. And yet we've chosen that for the text that we're going to meditate on just for a brief moment tonight about Christmas. And we're saying in this little obscure text is the essentials of Christmas. I think it is. What are those essentials? There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. I think if that isn't present at Christmas, Christmas is not complete. That's what actually makes Christmas complete. What is it? One God. One God. Not a polytheistic God. That would make life depressing. You'd never know which God you had to appease. You'd never know which God you had to make things right with. There's always another God lurking. You, you understand that in the ancient world, in a city like the city of Athens, or even in this city where Timothy was when he received this letter, the city of Ephesus, it was filled with gods. And in Athens, it was said there were more gods than there were people. Can you imagine having to own up to that many gods? That would be depressing. There's one God, not a polytheistic God, not a pantheistic God, not everything is God. That would be maddening, wouldn't it? To respond as if everyone and everything were God or deity, that'd be maddening. It's not a multi-directional God, it's one God, meaning there's only one way to this God. There's not many paths that lead to him, there's one God and one way to that God. It's not a relative God, it's not a God of your own making and choosing, a God that you want to believe in for yourself. That would be dangerous. If everybody had their own way of what is right and their own way to what is God, can you imagine what this world would look like? That would be dangerous. It's not an impersonal God. That would be so dissatisfying. If there was a God out there ruling over all things, but he wouldn't have anything to do with us personally. How dissatisfying. No, there's one God. And that God is singular. We know who we're dealing with. One God. He is individual. He's a person. He's not all things. He's exclusive. He's, he's not a God in which many roads can find him. There's one God that will reach, there's one road that will reach this one God. He's objective. He's not subjective. We're not trying to figure out who he is. We can know what he's like. He's personal. We can actually relate to this God. We can have a personal relationship with him. There's one God. That's who we relate to, this one God. And this one God has revealed himself to every single person in the entirety of the world. Every single person can look at the creation, they can look around them, and they can see what God is like. 
Not that the world is God, but what has been made tells us what God is like. And everyone can see it. So he's revealed himself, at least in general terms, to everyone. In specific terms, he's revealed himself to all of us through the pages of the Bible. So if you really want to know what this one God is all about and how it is that we would relate personally to this one God, you must see that through the scripture. There is only one God. Now, I I recognize that there are people out there that debate that. If you read the Bible, you'll find there's no debate. You know how the Bible begins? It's not in the beginning, let us explain how God is. It's in the beginning, God created. There's no explanation for him. He is, and he did, and he made. There is only one God with whom we have to deal with. And we must deal with him. There's one God. Friends, I would say to you, that is essential for Christmas to be complete. But also, another essential is that there's one mediator between that one God and us. That's an interesting choice of terms, isn't it? For the Apostle Paul to use as he's talking about what's essential. One God, one mediator. Why do we need a mediator? Why does there have to be a go-between? Why does there have to be someone that's in between us and God? Well, there needs to be a mediator because of who God is. He's deity because of who we're not. We're not deity. There's a difference, a vast, eternal, massive difference between God and us because of who he is. We have to have a mediator between deity and humanity. We are image bearers. We bear the image of deity. We don't carry the nature of deity. There's a massive difference. We need a mediator because of who God is, because of who we are, because of what we are. We're sinners. We're sinners. And when I say that we're sinners, that requires a mediator, I don't mean that everybody has done something bad in their life, which is true. We all have. You have, but that's not the, the biggest problem. The problem is not that you and I have done some bad things in life. The problem is, is that every single one of us at the core of our being is actually treasonous, right? You go all the way back into the garden when Eve was presented with fruit that she was not supposed to take. That fruit was in a tree called the knowledge of good and evil, meaning if she would eat from that, she would become, at least in her mind, it was told to her that she would become the one who would determine for herself what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. She would be self-determining in morality rather than dependent on God. In fact, she was told by the serpent, you're not gonna die if you eat that. God knows that when you eat that, you're going to be like him. You're going to be the one who chooses what's good and bad. And you know what? That's what she wanted. That's what she wanted. She didn't want to be supplanted by God. She wanted to be God. And so do you. And so do I. That's why we get frustrated when life doesn't quite go the way we think it ought to go, because we think we know the right way. 
we think we ought to be in charge. That's why we get upset with each other because people are disappointing us at times. And we think it ought to be a different way as if we know the right way. The problem in us, what makes us sinners is that we want to play a role we were not designed to play. And, and we'll, we'll throw a fit if we don't get it. We want to be our own God. We want to make the rules. That's why we need a mediator. God isn't about to give up his place. And he sees that response from those he has created as treasonous. And listen, one sin, no matter how great or how small, against an eternal God brings an eternal weight of punishment. Think about that. There's one God and we need a mediator. And who is that mediator? What is that mediator? It's the man, the man, Christ Jesus. That's Christmas. You you know that, right? That's Christmas. God taking on human nature, becoming the man, Christ Jesus. A human being, because it was human beings who were an affront to God. It was a complete person, because this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, was everything in humanity that God ever intended humanity to be. He was the perfect and complete person. He was a sinless person, so he lived his entire life in accordance with God's expectations and designs and his law, so he satisfied everything that is righteous in the eyes of God, this man, this human being. He didn't rely on his deity to do that. He did that in his humanity. The man Christ Jesus did that. He's a substitutional person because he took himself and put himself in our place to receive the penalty and the judgment for our treason that we deserve. He took it on himself. He's an eternal person also. Because he not only took on as a substitute punishment for us, he died in our place and then he was raised from the dead. He conquered the penalty of sin, didn't he? He paid the price for our sin, conquered the penalty, was raised, and therefore is an eternal person who now, this man, Christ Jesus, sits before the Father at the Father's right hand as all things have been completed in our redemption. And he is constantly praying on behalf of his people to keep us in God. That is amazing. This man, this one mediator has done that. That is what the birth in Bethlehem was all about. That's what it was to accomplish. That person is Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the promised, waited Messiah, Jesus. A real man in real time, satisfying God. There's one God, there's one man, the mediator, Jesus Christ. A third essential, there's one action. One action, what did he do? 
It says there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. A ransom for all. I want you to think about that. That plays on that idea that he was a substitute for us. He was a ransom for us. He bought us for God. God paid the price to bring us to himself. Treasonous people. He paid the price to bring us to himself. I want you to think what, about what it might mean and what this implies that he was a ransom for all. He's a ransom for all because all require being ransomed. You may not think of yourself that way, but that is why Jesus came, to ransom you. All require it. All have sinned. All come short of God's glory. He's a ransom for all because none are beyond being ransomed. No amount of goodness absolves our need to be ransomed and no amount of badness dissolves the possibility of being ransomed. It does not matter how wicked a person is or how deep the sin goes or how long it has gone on. You can be ransomed through this one man to that one God, through that one action. It also reminds us that anyone may be ransomed. Any may be ransomed. There is no amount of difference in any humanity, in anyone in humanity, that could keep us from being ransomed. I mean, you look across the room tonight and the distinctions among us are vast. Our backgrounds are different. Ethnicities are different. Families are different. Traditions, you know, likes, dislikes, there's so many differences. No, no difference could keep anyone from being ransomed. He ransomed all. And just at the right time, he is the witness, the testimony given at the proper time. Proper time historically, when everything was as it should be for Christ to come Redemptively, all of the promises were ready to be fulfilled in Christ at that particular time, so he came. That's essential. For Christmas to actually be complete, there has to be that one God, that one man, that one action. And let me just offer one more essential. There has to be one response that makes it complete. And that one response is belief. Belief. Now, what do I I mean by that belief? When I say believe, I, I mean something very specific. I mean, you have to give some kind of mental assent to these facts that we're talking about. There is one God. There is one man, Jesus Christ. He did live on this earth a perfect life in accordance with God. Those things you must mentally give assent to. You must say, that's true. If you don't agree to those facts, there is no redemption for you. But to believe means to agree to those facts. It's not just mental assent, though. It's also acceptance. You must personally welcome the truth about God. You must personally welcome the truth about us and who we are. You must personally welcome the truth about what was accomplished on your behalf through the person of Christ. You must personally come to the place where you say, that's not just true, I welcome it. So there's an assent, there's an acceptance, 
And last, there's also an affection. This is necessary in belief. It is not only that you say, yeah, I I think that's true historically. I, I want that for myself. That's not enough when you say believe. Believe is complete when you have affection. And what I mean by that is love. When you actually love God, you love Christ, you love the scriptures, you love the people that God has redeemed, you actually have love in your heart for who he is and what he has done, then you have really believed. My guess is that there are many, many people especially in the world we're living in now here in the United States, in red state America, we give mental assent to many of the facts about the person of Christ. We'll even personally say, yes, those are things I desire. But do you love him? Do you look at your life and say, this is what love to God because of what he's done looks like. That's what believe means. That's the one response that makes Christmas complete is that you believe. That kind of compelling assent and acceptance and affection that is so strong that you begin to renounce your desire to be king. You begin to renounce your desire to have supremacy. You see God alone has this place that he deserves And in humility, in sorrow over your sinfulness, you turn away from all all of the sinful ways that you have lived to try to prioritize yourself. And you supremely value God through Christ. That's what it means to believe. One God, one mediator, one action, one response. So I hope you see the lights and you give the gifts and you enjoy the food and you welcome in the family and you participate in all the traditions that you typically associate with this time of year. Enjoy the 70 degree weather. I mean, enjoy it. Say that's, that's Christmas blessing, dear friends. Enjoy it. But it's not complete if it's absent of who Christ is and what he's come to accomplish. Now, I don't know where you are in relationship to God. I don't know where you are in relationship to what it means to believe. But this would be a good time for you to think about where you are before God and whether or not you actually believe the way the Bible calls you to believe. And if you do What a time to rejoice in everything that God has provided. He has done everything to bring you to himself. There's nothing lacking. And you don't have to bear the burden of your sin and the weight of it. You can actually be free from that and experience satisfaction. Yes, there will be trial and challenge in life, but there can be an abiding satisfaction in the middle of that trial because you know you are at peace with God. And I don't know where that is with you tonight. I pray that you're rejoicing in that kind of belief that has turned from sin and embraced Christ. But if you haven't, then you should call on him tonight.
You should ask him to save you. You should ask him to change you and transform your life. You should believe with all your mind, all your person, and all your affection in what God has done for you in Christ. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you a moment to silently reflect on where Christ is in your Christmas and whether or not this is a complete Christmas for you in your heart and your soul. And then we're going to do what we do every Christmas Eve service. We're going to take of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a time for those who have publicly acknowledged Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And they have publicly acknowledged him that way through baptism, which is the way we publicly confess Christ. And if you're a part of a local church, it doesn't have to be this church, but a local church that teaches this gospel and you've publicly professed Christ that way, we want you to participate in this service. And what we're saying when we take of these elements in a moment, we're saying when we take that bread, we are all a part of the body of Christ and we are publicly together, visibly in front of everyone saying, we are together the body of Christ. We represent him. When we take of the cup, we are saying we totally, completely, publicly identify ourselves with the person of Jesus Christ and his death as the satisfaction for the penalty of our sin. And we are also saying as we take that cup and we drink it, which it's a representation of his life given for us, that we're expecting and awaiting him to come back and receive his people back to himself, where we're going to enjoy fellowship personally with him for all eternity. That's what you're saying. And if that's you, then we want you to participate. If that's not you, feel free to pass the the plate along. There's no judgment here about that. We don't have communion police roaming the aisles. You don't need to worry about that. But this is what Christians do to say, here's the body of Christ. Here's who we are. We do it together to signify that. And so if that's you, then we want you to participate. But I want you to pray. Just where you are for a moment, silently bow your head. Where, where is Christ in the completion of your Christmas celebration?